0: Hello, and welcome to episode 54 of the CoinPress Podcast. I'm Luke Willis. Today, I'm joined by Shai Vibarsky, researcher working on uh, his PhD in classical and quantum crypto- cryptography. He was the co-author of Ghostdag, a paper that inspired uh, a lot of CASPA's decisions. So Today, we are talking about CASPA currency, a, uh, a block DAG, not a blockchain, that was born to to implement this ghost DAG concept. So Shai has been part of the Caspa community for a long time, and today uh, we're going to get into what is Caspa. So welcome, Shai. Thank you for coming on.
1: Hi, thanks for having me, Luke.
0: Absolutely. Um, so just to give everybody uh, a very brief overview of the kind of the, the vision here, Caspa is. Um, and, and feel free to jump in, Shai, if you agree, disagree with any of this, uh, is meant to kind of pull from the original vision of Bitcoin and uh, really make it more accessible and make it more uh, where Bitcoin is digital gold, be more like digital silver. And Caspa actually means silver. Uh, and so it's this vision of being a more readily available means of exchange, um, but still sticking to that kind of true Satoshi principles. Is that fair to say?
1: Uh, I'd say that Casper uh, is uh, currently more uh, adhering to Satoshi's original vision than Bitcoin. Hmm. Uh, I think the store of value digital gold uh, narrative uh, was uh, introduced after Bitcoin failed to deliver a, a usable cash system as envisioned um, by Satoshi. And we are trying to fix this because uh, I think we found the technical solution to the problems that prevented Bitcoin from uh, achieving this goal.
0: Cool. So, and that's really what we're going to talk about today is is what is that technical solution. Um, and so when we talk about being a more accessible means of exchange, the, the problems that Bitcoin ran into are, I mean, typically summarized as the trilemma today, right? Where Bitcoin, Pretty much nailed the uh, security and decentralization aspects of uh, of the trilemma, but then it's that scalability leg that made it difficult for Bitcoin to really live up to the the vision that Satoshi had. Um, so Caspa is really focusing on scalability by being a DAG instead of a blockchain, which we'll talk about. Um, but mm-hmm. as we're as we're talking about Bitcoin. Um, CASPA actually has done some things that I think are, are very true to the vision. Um, I believe CASPA was FAIR launched, uh, so the tokens weren't sold, they were mined. And uh, there is a certain amount of ease to run a node where with Bitcoin it's, you know, harder and harder. You have to have dedicated hardware to be competitive. Um, CASPA is designed so more people can participate, which helps with decentralization. So, Um, yeah, go
1: ahead. Yeah, I'd say that uh, the way you presented things are are fair. Essentially, uh, a lot of the solutions that uh, provide scalability uh, do so by sacrificing uh, security. Um, Proof-of-stake in general, uh, not by, I'm sorry, I meant uh, by uh, sacrificing uh, uh, decentralization. Sure. Uh, and security, actually, I think like proof of stake is uh, inherently less secure than mm. proof of work, and um, it's just a mathematical fact. It doesn't mean that proof of stake is bad; it just means that it gives you weaker security guarantees. Um, but I, I personally believe, and this is, I wouldn't state it as like uh, a universal truth. Uh, there is a lot of room for debate here, but I don't believe that proof of stake could really be decentralized as well. Sure, and and. What we try to do is to make everything as decentralized as possible. Now, the first thing you want to do to ensure decentralization is to have this consensus level decentralization. You want your consensus to have this unique property of Bitcoins and uh, and traditional proof-of-work blockchains, that the probability that you get to make a decision like you can think about this entire thing as a voting game right like it doesn't even matter what's written in the blocks the fact that it's a transaction is, is an application on the consensus level you just decide you have two blocks and you decide which is first you decide which is true and your voting power is proportional to the uh, amount of energy that you put into um, into the voting that's essentially the idea um so you get this like a uh, majority voting uh, mechanism, which doesn't require any central entity to tally votes. It's just counted by sheer energy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we didn't want to deviate from that. And it's very, very hard not to deviate from that while increasing throughputs. And right. um, it's, it's a, a bit technical, but the thing is that If you just naively take Bitcoin and make it uh, a thousand times faster or have a thousand times larger blocks, then you're actually not going to be secure because you get orphan blocks, you get parallel blocks. Since parallel blocks are not included, you get this uh, um, dynamic where um, honest work just gets wasted. The actual chain doesn't grow as fast as the amount of energy put into it. A lot of this energy is just trashed and it becomes easier to attack the network. And also, it has a lot of problems just doing that. Um, So a lot of projects try to overcome this problem by saying, we don't want to drop uh, any blocks. We want to include all of the blocks. um, And this creates ambiguity, because you have two parallel blocks, and you have, say, a double spend across Mm -hmm. these two parallel blocks. And you need to decide which of the blocks is the, you can't call it correct or wrong. You just, you need to somehow decide which transaction is valid and which is isn't. And this turns out to be very difficult. And many attempts to do so found out that they have what's called a liveness attack. It's essentially mean that a, a weak attacker can delay indefinitely the, 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 resor- the resolution of this conflict. Right. And so, like, you can imagine that uh, we have two blocks with conflicting transactions. In one block, I pay you a, a hundred X coin, and in the other block, I pay pay someone else this X coin. Mm-hmm. And uh, naively, we would say, okay, accept one of these transactions. One it ha- once it has much much more work above it than the other transaction. Right. But then an attacker can just every just. Uh, put weight on one of the transactions and then on the other and just work to keep them balanced and indefinitely prevent this uh, kind of resolution. So this is what's called a liveness attack, and it's a very huge problem. It's very hard to solve when you try to include all transactions. Like, on one hand, you want to be parallel. On the other hand, you want to quickly converge on uh, how uh, uh, conflicts are resolved. And now, a lot of people at this point stop and ask, Okay, but why do you even care? I mean, it could take a day to resolve or a year to resolve, but you only see these conflicts when um, two blocks disagree on a transaction, which means that someone double spent, attempted a double spend. So it's their problem as long as you don't double spend and you don't need to wait for the conflict to resolve. But the thing is that uh, when you go to smart contracts, uh, higher functionality, dependencies between blocks, then you get completely honest um, honest uh, states, which rely on the ordering of two blocks and they need them to resolve. So it's not something you can brush away by saying that uh, um, you you finalize transaction first as long as they're honest. Um, right. So I think a lot of uh, protocols had uh, various attempts to solve this. Um, the simplest approach is a sharded parallel chain approach that I see on several chains, and um, which essentially say I have a lot of independent chains, and each of them is a traditional blockchain, but I somehow glue them together. And mm-hmm. uh, so this does increase throughput, but it creates a lot of problems, and uh, it still gives you like the same slow confirmation times you are used to from traditional chains. Um, Casper, as far as I know, is the first. Uh, first protocol that uh, manages to um, to resolve conflicts really really fast while including all of the blocks. This is essentially the the breakthrough here. This yeah. is the thing that GoStack does that uh, protocols prior to GoStack weren't uh, able to do that much. Um, there were protocols that managed to do it partially, but with uh, still with slow uh, confirmation times. So I think the Think, people think that the main selling point of Casper is the the big throughput but that's a bonus. i think the the main selling point here is that the we managed to scale down uh, confirmation times to the lowest possible limit which is the uh, network latency. gotcha. so
0: just so we can kind of set the stage here for everybody we're, we're getting into the point where we're talking about dags and i'm not sure everybody who's listening is going to understand the difference here. so just to to explain that a blockchain is um, a series of blocks in a line, right? There's no forking. There's no multiple chains. Um, Shai just gave some great examples of different problems that this creates and um, different um, solutions that people have tried to come up with for faster throughput on a blockchain. <clears throat> but specifically, um, I like the point that you made about the the liveness attack, where um, when you get this kind of forking of two different valid blocks on a blockchain the winner traditionally is the longest chain so the work comes and they you know they keep adding on to one of the two blocks and eventually that one will win and the other one is is what's called an orphan block um Mm -hmm. and then uh the liveness attack is basically to provide enough power to the network so that you can play on both chains Um, So when it forks and you get these blocks, you just keep them both long, and then...
1: Yeah, but there is an essential difference here. Okay. Um, If one of the chains is slightly longer than the other, Mm -hmm. um, the entire network or most of the network will build over this chain. So if you want to carry out this attack on this um, shorter chain to make it longer, you have to be as powerful as the honest network. Right. So it's essentially, it's a, it's a double-spend attack, it's it's a 51% attack. Um, right. In DAGs, what makes DAX difficult is that um, both conflicting transactions are still pointed out by the honest network. So mm-hmm. the honest network contributes work to both. So you can't just say, okay, if I take the longest chain, I will converge to it, and a computationally inferior attacker would never manage to take me back to the other chain. And the, the, the whole inclusiveness makes it that you don't need to computationally compete with the network to carry out these liveness steps because the network itself grows at pretty much the same pace over both of them, because you're allowed to point at two blocks that are conflicting. You just say we have some rule that will decide the ordering.
0: Right. So this
1: this is the problem. These chains are not segregated. You don't the Honest Nodes don't say I mine over this or over that. They mine over both. Right. This is exactly what creates the problem.
0: Okay. Um, and now when we talk about 51% attacks and the liveness attack, it feels like, and, and feel free to disagree with me here, but it feels like this is a generally a bigger problem with proof of work, because uh, it's generally cheaper to provide you know 51% of the the power of the network for a, a short period of time right it's difficult to keep that up for a long period of time um compared with proof of stake proof of stake which you said you don't care for uh it's quite difficult to acquire 51% of the tokens on the network
1: uh, so. i would argue the opposite i sure. would say that uh, well you don't have live attacks uh, i in proof of stake, you have the privilege of saying, OK, uh, anything below this point is now finalized. You can't mm-hmm. change it anymore. And everyone agrees on that. And then you, the internet network build on top of it. You have sure. all of these rounds of voting and things. So it does provide you with uh, this sort of security that you can't get on proof of work. Because on proof of work, theoretically, you could always find out of a heavier chain and move to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now. At some point, there is a finality, but it would have to be very long. I mean, you couldn't revert a, a year-old transaction if because we have finality at the depth of three days, for example, in Casper. But you don't want to wait three days for uh, for confirmation. You want to wait uh, fifteen seconds. Uh, so proof of work has to somehow deal with this kind of thing and say that. Um, show that reverting or delaying the resolution of a transaction is something that requires a lot of computational resources, mm-hmm. um, and now you're saying uh, that it's cheap to um, to create a short burst of a 51% attack, and I would argue that uh, it's maybe true for uh, small chains which were not yet adopted. Sure. Um, and and it's less true for uh, more highly adopted chains, uh, especially chains which are ASIC-friendly. Now, this is uh, a point where people uh, sometimes raise an eyebrow because um, ASIC-friendliness, a lot of the time, is considered a bad thing. Saying, you're just uh, giving away the token to the ASIC manufacturers. You don't uh, give uh, GPU miners and everyday miners a fair chance. And uh, my response to that is that Um, uh, ASIC friendliness is for the best in the long run, for uh, reasons I will now explain. It's problematic in the short run, and these problems have to be addressed, and we did attempt to address them, and uh, I'll explain how um, in a minute. Sure. But the thing is that um, the end game is that the network is mostly uh, mined on ASICs. And why is this a good thing? Because... um, it means that 51 attacking the network is no longer about uh, how much electricity you have or how much GPUs you're able to rent. It's okay. about uh, procuring expensive and scarce equipment. Okay. If you want to, uh, say like in a year from now, CASPA is 100% ASIC, and if you want to 51% attack the network, You'd yeah. have to get as much ASICs. You don't have any chance at all to do it with GPUs because a single ASIC is about as powerful as I don't know five thousand GPUs. Right. right? And and there are like thousands of ASICs. So the only way you could be able to carry out this attack is to somehow get hold of a huge quantity of scarce equipment. Right. So this actually makes security, I think, much stronger and a fifty-one percent attack. Much less viable. Gotcha. Um,
0: I think that's fair. Um, I, I like that. That's a, an argument I actually haven't heard before for for ASICs. So I think that's that's a really good point. The I think that the counterpoint to that is that ASICs are well, yeah, they can help with security. Um, the the restriction and the scarcity of um, the the hardware makes it less decentralized, because larger players will only be the ones who can play.
1: Yes, Um, that's one concern that people have. Another concern people have is about the spread of the coin. They say, Mm. uh, if only um, institutions or uh, people that uh, can afford ASICs uh, get to mine, then you have these uh, institutions and uh, corporations that uh, control a very large proportion of the coin. Right. So these are two concerns, the one that I raised about spread of the coin and the one that you raised about the spread of the mining. Right. Two valid concerns, the, to, uh, to both of which I have answers. Okay. Right? So um, which one would you like me to start with? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: let's take yours, the spread of the coin.
1: Okay, so what we did to um, spread the coin better is, first of all, we made sure that um, the hashing algo that we use is new. And the thing about ASICs is that uh, even if you make a very small change to the hashing ALDO, uh, then the ASICs uh, can't mine it anymore. So you can take an existing ALGO and modify it a little bit, and then you won't see ASICs, at least until someone decided that it's it makes financial sense to fabricate hmm. an ASIC towards this goal. Now, we chose um, an ALGO called Heavy Hash. Uh, it was used by uh, OBTC. Mm-hmm. Um, which, as far as we know, didn't have any ASICs at all. It has GPUs and FPGAs, and we took another step and modified this uh, this protocol, uh, this uh, hash algo, and mm-hmm. um, in a way which also made existing GPU miners and FPGA miners um, ineffective. Like okay. this way, we assured that there would be like a short period of a few weeks of um, CPU mining and then GPUs and FPGA would gradually enter, and ASICs will only emerge when um, when it becomes financially uh, it makes financial sense to go through this very expensive process of uh, designing and fabricating them. Great. Now the other thing that we did is the rapid emission schedule. One thing that people are always surprised about when they research Casper is that uh, the entire circulation is going to be um, um, out. Like the the circulating supplies will reach the full supply in like, uh, I think 20 or 30 years from now, I don't actually remember. And you compare it to other projects which uh, are scheduled to emit for like 150, 200 years. Um, And the point of that was that by the time ASICs actually emerge, a lot of the circulation we've already have been minted to GPU yeah. miners and GPU miners have much higher operational costs, right? They pay more electricity to gain the same fraction. So they have to spend more coin to, um, to cover the expenses. So you get like this natural spread of the coin, uh, which is uh, uh, essentially what happened. We were hoping that ASICs will emerge when about 80% of the circulation was out Mm -hmm. And in reality, the adoption was much faster than we anticipated. And ASICs emerged around 65%, which if you go and check, it's about the same point as Bitcoin. Bitcoin ASICs started to emerge when about 65% of the coin was already uh, minted. So people say rapid uh, emission. I don't think it's rapid. I think that what this proves is that if you normalize everything by adoption rate, then you see that actually our emission schedule is about the same as bitcoins.
0: Sure.
1: Um, after the normalization, when you take into account that people adopt coins much faster now than they did in 2010, right? And all the other coins which emit for 200 years, they have very, very slow emission schedule, which essentially means that uh, they could lean on the scratch of having block rewards, to drawing miners for as long as they live, and only five generations down the line they would have to face this problem we want a project to be fully adopted within our lifetime so it was uh, important to us to to make this um, emission of rewards fast so we we could say we could see with our own live eyes that the coin is alive and well even though there are no emissions the free market is doing its job and the economy is stable yeah okay. and so that's that's about uh, how we approach this uh, aspect and i want to say another thing i I think that ASIC resistance is a bad idea because mm. down the line, designated hardware always wins. The, if the hardware is 10 times more uh, efficient than GPUs, or 100 times, or uh, 10,000 times more efficient, the designated hardware will always win. The only thing you gain by ASIC resistance is that this designated hardware would be inefficient. Mm. And while it still excludes GPU miners and everyday miners, on one hand, on the other hand, you you don't get this benefit that I say before, because it still had, has very high operational expenses. It's, it's not just uh, capital heavy expenses to join mining. So this is what I have to say about uh, um, spreading the coin. Uh, now about um, the other thing, what was it? The no, spread of good. the mining itself. And um, so one thing that uh, addresses this really nicely, I think, is the high uh, block rate. Mm-hmm. So think about it this way. Um, uh, mathematically speaking, if you have a fraction f of the network, right? Like, when f is like a, a number between 0 and 1. So say that you have a fraction of 0.01, means that you have 1%. Mm-hmm. And a block is produced once every L seconds, then you would see a block once every L over F seconds. So like in Bitcoin, they have a block once every 600 seconds. And if you have a percent, a a whole percent of the Bitcoin, network, which is so much, Mm -hmm. then you will see a block once every um, 60,000 seconds, because you would essentially mine one out of every 100 blocks. Right. So if you have the same fraction, on a network which produces 20,000 more blocks uh, at the same period of time, you'd have to wait uh, 20,000 times less. Like, uh, you know what I mean. Like uh, the amount of blocks you produce uh, in a given time is 20,000 times higher. So you would get much faster return on investment. Now this is the barrier for uh, mining. What a miner needs is a steady uh, revenue, steady stream of uh, revenue. They need to know that they wouldn't wait so much from block to block. And mm-hmm. um, so, having a very high block rate means that you need to have a very uh, much smaller fraction of the network to see the same uh, return on investment time. I'm talking about just about solo mining. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, so, essentially, To be competitive, you need a lot less hardware. So even if we are ASIC dominated, and say there are, I don't know, like 10,000 ASICs around the world, now you want to get into the uh, mining game, you want to buy ASICs and start mining, Mm -hmm. Um, and say with Bitcoin you have to, and you want to see, I don't know, like a weekly return on investment, so in Bitcoin you would have to buy I don't know like uh, fifty no, it's th- these aren't real numbers just for illustration. Yeah. That's right. But in Bitcoin you would have to buy like fifty asics, and in Casper, a single ASIC is enough for you to see constant uh, return on investment. So even when there are asics, you still need a lot less hardware. Essentially one ASIC, as long as the, you can do the back of the envelope calculation. But if we get to uh, thirty BPS or even ten BPS, then hmm. As long as there aren't literally millions of ASICs, then a single ASIC is enough for you to see a steady steady revenue mm-hmm. and which makes it much easier. Like in Bitcoin, you really need to have like a, a, something close to a percent, half of a percent so the network can only support like a thousand, two thousand miners with steady revenue, solo miners. And in, in Casper, you can support... We have like 6,000 times more the blocks in 10VPS, so you, we can support 6,000 times more miners with the same um, expected uh, time they wait for revenue. So this is one thing that uh, decentralizes mining a lot, for solo mining. Um, and there is also another effect which decentralizes pooled mining. Now, yeah. if you mine in a mining pool, then at some point you want to cash out, right? Mm -hmm. You want to make uh, enough money so you could cash out. Now, how much money do you have to accumulate before you can cash out? What controls this threshold? Um, And the answer to this is essentially um, you want the amount of money that you have accumulated to be much higher than the cost of a transaction fee, right? Yeah. the, it costs you a dollar to to cash to to cash out your winning because that's the transaction fee, mm-hmm. uh, and you don't want to cash out when you got after you accumulated two dollars. You want to cash out after you accumulate a thousand dollars, right? Right. So the thing is, when you have a high TPS, then typically the fee for a single transaction is much lower. So it means that even if you go into pooled mining, you would have to wait a lot less before you have accumulated enough money to cash out. So even in the cold mining case, the hardware entry barrier for a, for a steady revenue is much lower due to the high TPS this time.
0: Gotcha. Um, yeah, and then that answers one of my other questions that I had, I was hoping we'd get to later, but the uh, Casper really focuses on BPS, blocks per second, instead of TPS, transaction per second, which it seems like every, blockchain project is touting, uh, TPS numbers, which yeah, it reduces transaction fees and various other benefits in terms of scalability for the network. But the, the emphasis on decentralizing the network, uh, even in an ASIC minor situation, um, I think that's a really compelling case to focus on BPS, which BPS will, will then follow with higher BPS. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, Okay, so that was very good. I appreciate the explanation there. Um, I do, I wanna take a step back from the the meat here and, and get into what is a DAG, for people who don't know, and how does that differ from a blockchain uh, in a little more detail, and then talk about Caspa's ghost DAG and then a couple other uh, things that, that you left out on Twitter the other day. Um, mm-hmm. So, For starters, a DAG is a directed acyclic graph, and Mm -hmm. um, we already talked about how a blockchain is a single line, and then you can have those liveness attacks, and which is basically a fork on the chain. Uh, And but a a DAG has these parallel blocks, which is what you've been talking about. Let let me
1: simplify it because when people try to understand what a DAG is, uh, they tend to go go into two uh, interpretation, which is just too complex. Sure. But the answer is very simple. In a blockchain, a block can point at one block. Mm-hmm. In a DAG, a, one block can point to many blocks. That's it. That's the entire difference. Once each block has several pointers to several other blocks, then you are in a DAG. That's it. Now, the question is, what do you do with this DAG? Um, And this is the problem, like a a DAG isn't a solution. A DAG is a problem. Mm. A DAG is the correct way to uh, mathematically um, phrase um, the the problem of, um, of scalability, the problem of convergence, the problem of taking all of this information, all of this worldview from from all of the participants and all of the nodes that might be inconsistent with each other and extracting for it some sort of uh, cohesive, um, non-conflicting world view, which everyone on the network agrees on, at least maybe just the tip Like, you need to wait, you'll always have to wait at least as much as the network latency. Um, But besides that, the network would agree completely on, on how all of these conflicts are resolved. So this is what we call the block DAG paradigm, and it's different from the blockchain paradigm. Now, um, I'm going to say that even in a blockchain, the blocks are not arranged in a chain. Mm. And this is something which confuses people. In a blockchain, the blocks are arranged in what's called a tree. Um, mm. Because it's true that every block can point to every to, only to a single block, right? Right. But there could be a block that has several blocks pointing at it, right? Yeah. This is essentially what happens when you see a fork. Yeah. And so the blockchain paradigm is to take this three and somehow extract from it a chain. And uh, which we say and we just say disregard everything that's outside this chain. Right. And the block DAG paradigm say take this DAG, this um, this more complicated structure where one block can point at several blocks, even conflicting blocks, mm-hmm. and extract some logic from it. And the way we extract logic from it is not that we isolate one chain and throw away the rest. Is that we take this entire DAG and we transform it into a chain. And so we take, uh, if I see I have two parallel blocks and I'm going to decide this one is first and this one is second, And then I make it into this long chain containing all of the blocks. And so this is what's called the ghost DAG ordering. Now, there were other attempts at making uh, ordering and ordering blocks. Um, Essentially, every proof of work uh, DAG protocol which isn't sharded is essentially an attempt to solve this problem. I'm talking about Conflux, I'm talking about IOTA, and other projects. Um, What they try to do? what we try to do is essentially solve this problem how do you take this dag and extract an ordering from it in a way which has good and nice and secure properties much the same way that bitcoin and ethereum find a way to take this tree and extract a chain from it in a way which has good and secure properties this is the difference and I'm, i'm being highly abstract here because i want people to understand the problem before we even talk about the solution, sure.
0: Gotcha. No, it's um, uh, it's it's a good. I appreciate you providing that because it the the concept of a blockchain and it, it it is simpler to think about it not in terms of this chain of blocks versus a graph of blocks. It's it really is just n- blocks pointing at each other, <laughs> and how many you can point at it is the the difference here. And now. In order for a DAG to be a DAG, it has to have a couple specific properties. You know, it has to be acyclic and
1: all that, but. Yes, but uh, again, these properties, if you're coming from a graph theoretic point of view, where you start with graphs as abstract things, and then you say, okay, let's explore these graphs with uh, certain properties, then yeah, but I think the way we think about it is just that an arrow, for like a reference from a block to another block is just a reference back in time. Just this block is saying, when I was born, Mm -hmm. these are the blocks that existed before me. And so this is like a causality thing. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it this way, then obviously you don't have cycles because it's absurd. It just means that you have like, block A was created before block B, that was created before block C, that was created before block A. So um, as long as we don't have like time loops, this just doesn't happen. Sure.
0: okay that makes sense um okay so <laughs> yeah time loops the uh so so looking at then uh a dag and having multiple blocks running at the same time the the trick then is this agreement between the blocks mm-hmm. right and, and that's the reason that blockchains throw out work and you know say you know we're only going to stick with this chain and we're not going to keep these other blocks is because if a transaction happens and you know there's a double spend in another block somebody's spending the, the same tokens twice then you have to say well we're only going to accept this one we're not going to accept that one you, you have to make that decision so mm-hmm. Ghostag and uh, and Casper what's your your strategy? Let, let's get into to Ghostag and how that works for keeping things reconciled across blocks?
1: Yeah, sure. And um, I'm gonna answer this but before this I, I yeah. just want to to comment on what you said mm-hmm. that uh, the work is uh, thrown away outside the, the selected chain like the main chain. and um, I said it a few times and that's true for Bitcoin. But that's not strictly true in general. Um, Like the ghost protocol, not Mm -hmm. ghost tag, the ghost protocol from 2013, uh, it essentially means a greedy, heaviest observed subtree. I know it's like a lot of words, uh, but essentially it's a protocol that does take into account the work in blocks that are outside the chain. Mm. It doesn't take into account the transactions on these blocks only blocks on the chain are considered a part of the state but it does allow blocks outside the chain in a limited way to contribute to the work and gotcha. um, which makes folks folks are still a problem that's why even ethereum can scale down to to sub second block times and um, uh, now ethereum doesn't even use ghost anymore but even if it did um but um it does uh, mean that you have some some approaches which are uh, stronger than uh, than this uh, just uh, heaviest chain approach. And uh, so the ghost approach is one of them. Uh, and now, uh, I think a lot of people don't know this, but Ethereum is essentially a DAG okay. as well. And um, they use uh, a modification of another protocol by uh, by some Polinsky and Zohar, which, and, uh, and uh, another guy, Yoad uh, Levenberg. Uh, which is called the inclusive protocol, um, and this protocol uh, is another approach to allow you to to um, consider work done by uh, um, blocks outside the main chain and even reward the miners fractionally for their contribution. Um, but it still doesn't allow you uh, a secure uh, liveness uh, proof way to to also include the transactions in these blocks. Um, so. So it's not strictly true that uh, the the work outside dimension is entirely thrown away, but it still doesn't contribute maximally, which still limits the scaling of the entire thing. Uh, and now Ghost Duck came with an entirely different approach, and I can't stress this enough. Ghost Duck is not Ghost. It's not an adaptation of Ghost. It's not uh, an increment increment of Ghost. It's a completely new approach even though the names are very similar um and this, this entire name is a joke it's just because of the movie ghost dog <laughs> and now um if you want to really dive into the details um i have this short three hour long video um, and <laughs> called uh, the ghost dog 101 where i really get in there sure. but the the main idea is very simple um Say most of the network, like sixty percent of the network, is honest, mm-hmm. and you have like an adversary which is trying to double spend, and they have like forty percent. Sure. Um, it's no longer true that the um, uh, honest network blocks and the attacker blocks, and um, they are completely disparate from each other, because mm-hmm. of the DAG structure. Structure, the attacker can even though they withhold their blocks and they like cultivate an, a, a secret attack their blocks can still point at at blocks from the honest network and uh, somehow steal their work, right? Like, they can use the work of the honest network to make their own chain heavier, uh, which is what makes everything so difficult. Um, But the observation is that um, the group of honest blocks, it would be in some sense, which can be be made uh, mathematically precise, it would be very connected every block in this cluster of blocks will be aware of almost all the other clo- blocks in this cluster, right? Mm. So um, every honest block knows almost every other honest block. The only honest blocks they don't know is blocks that were created almost at the same time. And so since our blocks throughput is regular, then like, uh, a single block would most of the time have like, I don't know, 10, up to 10 or 15 parallel blocks. It really depends on uh, The parameters you use, and the but the honest blocks would not know the attacker blocks, right? And if the attacker runs the attack for a long time, that means it's a a large set of blocks which all of the honest blocks don't know. So essentially. Um, in principle, in, in practice, that's not what we do. Again, I won't go into this. Essentially what I'm describing now is not the ghost protocol, but the phantom protocol. Okay. Um, but uh, the idea is that you look for the largest cluster you can find of blocks such that all blocks know almost all other blocks in this cluster. And you say, this cluster is the cluster of honest blocks. And even if you have an attacker and the attacker blocks know the honest blocks, the honest blocks don't know the attacker blocks back. So you can't include the attacker blocks inside this cluster. So this is a way to isolate the, the honest good blocks. You just sure. assume that the honest network is a majority and it's sufficiently well-connected.
0: Hmm. Okay, <clears throat> that makes some sense. So having uh, basically all the different blocks exist in a, a cluster where they're aware of each other you've created a system where the um, the graph is able to grow in chunks at a time and then it's much more difficult to provide enough work that um you can
1: essentially if you're (laughs) outside the honest network then the blocks that you create that compete with the honest network, yeah. they wouldn't be a part of this highly connected maximal cluster. Mm. And the ghost the ordering gives precedence to the blocks inside this cluster. So if you conflict a transaction inside this cluster, then your conflict would be invalid. You know that what's in the Highly connected cluster will win. So if you have a transaction in there, then you're like, okay, even if there is a 40% attack, and even if it's very intricately connected to the honest network, the the ordering would make it that uh, any conflicting transactions out there wouldn't be chosen. They they would lose in the conflict resolution. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Yeah, so, so basically, within a cluster, you can't do a double spend. Uh, and then it's really just how...
1: Well, you can. You can do a double spend. Uh, it could be that conflicting transactions would be inside that cluster. Um, sure. And then they would resolve. And okay. the thing is that you see both of them. Um, so you ask yourself two questions. What, what do I do if I see a conflict right away? Mm-hmm. And the other question is, if I haven't seen a conflict for a long time, couldn't a conflict emerge retroactively? So I essentially described why we we're secure against the second kind of attack,
0: sure. um, which
1: is essentially the fifty-one percent attack. The fact that we are secure against the first kind of attack, we're saying even if you see a conflict, you know it's going to resolve quickly. Essentially, it means we are also secure against liveness attacks.
0: Right. Okay. Um. Well, I will put a link to that three-hour video, which I will be watching myself. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, technical detail here that I would love to spend more time on, but I think that the the depth of it is deserve it deserves a longer format than than we have time for here. So, uh, I'll drop the link to the three-hour video. But if anybody has questions about ghostag and how the the clusters work and resolution of of conflicts um that video would be a great place to to start and if uh, you have specific questions I'm, I'll be putting out threads on twitter and writing about this as well as I understand it better and then Chai, you're you're all around so <laughs> you can reach out to him um cool so the one more thing that i wanted to talk about, um, well, OK, before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about uh, finality where um, so typically with blockchains, you have a period of time where you say now we're, we're finalized. Right. So the you've reached a long enough chain or, um, you know, it's been five minutes or however many hours or whatever it is, depending on the chain where now you say, all right, this is finality. Uh, anything before this period of time is gospel truth, and uh, you can't go back and um, dispute that for, on the chain. So for uh, for Caspa, I believe it has a finality of around 10 seconds, uh, which is surprising to me for, for a DAG because reaching finality when you have parallel blocks is... Um, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty hard problem. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, this might just be circling around kind of the same question we were already talking about, but can you get into a little bit more about that finality number and, um, maybe what you see as uh kind of an ideal that you'd like to get to for finality, whether you, th- you see that number going down over time, um, or staying pretty steady or yeah, I'll leave it at that. Mm -hmm. Well, uh,
1: there's a lot to unpack here. This is going to be a long episode (laughs) for your podcast, (laughs) right? I I don't mind, I can talk here all night. So, um, yeah, the thing is, the difficulty, well, I I just want uh, first uh, to clear out something. Um, Usually, and there, is, there are two th- different things. Now, this is just the jargon I'm used to. I'm not saying it's a universal truth. And um, just I'm going to stick to it because just that's what I'm used to. And if I'm going to try um, switching it around, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes and confuse everyone. And um, sure. when I talk about finality, I mean what you said, uh, gospel truth. Uh, like uh, at some point, something becomes finalized to the extent that... Uh, It's not going to revert, essentially. I'm going to explain what I mean by it. Um, And what you're talking about is confirmation. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I'll start with finality because it's the simplest one. Um, We make an assumption that a transaction that is sufficiently old, or a block that is sufficiently old, is not going to get excluded or reorganized in the ordering. Why do we make this assumption? Because um, we have to make these assumptions if we want to be able to, to discard block data. You want to say that data that is old enough is unnecessary. We don't need to know who paid whom like a year ago. We just need to remember what the state was three days ago and then we can compute the current state from all the blocks created after that point. And this is called pruning and it's extremely essential for uh, decentralization. Because if you don't have this sort of mechanism, then you just keep accumulating more and more data. And as time goes on, it becomes you need more storage. Um, but worse than that, it takes much, much longer to synchronize a new node. Because you need more and more and more time and uh, to download more and more data just to know that you are up to date and you can start, uh, start validating. And um, so this is why a lot of chains, you see, they take uh, five to seven days, days, <laughs> to sync a new node. And we have this pruning mechanism, which makes the storage requirements fixed and constant, um, excluding the so That's a whole different problem that nobody solved yet. But uh, the amount of ledger data, uh, block data, header data, that you have to, to store is constant. It doesn't go with time. As consequently, even though we have been running for two years, uh, like a year and a half, a little bit more than a year and a half, and the time it takes to synchronize a new node is still like uh, less than an hour, like 40 minutes, and Rust validates things much faster and allows, like, if you got interrupted and you don't have to restart the resync and all uh, this stuff, it goes down to even 20 or 30 minutes for a ledger that has been running for a year and a half. And you see ledgers really requiring days, and we are talking about minutes. So pruning is what allows this miracle. But if you want to have pruning, then you need to know, if a block is old enough, I will never, ever, ever need the data therein. So you have to make an assumption. You have to assume that there will never be a reorganization, a split, that goes as deep as that, right? Uh, So this is finality. This is saying, if it's that old, it's never going to change. And the thing is, we're not saying that we can't promise that it's not going to change. Well, what we're saying is more like, if we now witness a three days long job, like your node is operating and suddenly you see a heavier chain that you need to go four days to recalculate to calculate its state, and you have then you have bigger problems. This is a point when you need to manually stop the chain, converge the community, and decide on what you need. it needs human intervention. Mm. So if if we violate finality at any point, it does it just means that we have bigger problems on our hands right now. And we need to, so it's it's social consensus, just saying that this larger split means that we need to say just let's stop the network for a minute and decide how to carry on so this is why i think this kind of assumption is justified i think it's better than a situation where ah like code is low so you had like a week old reorg you just someone reverted the entire economy a week back but okay it's working i don't think it's a good approach anyway so this is why i think this kind of assumption is justified and that's finality and now You can't wait for finality, because then you'd have to wait three days for your uh, transaction to to be completed. Like, if now I'm going to transfer like 5 billion caspa, and no, I don't have 5 billion caspa, but theoretically, if I transfer, if someone paid me 5 billion caspa, then I would have waited the three days before I've considered this. Um, But uh, the thing about confirmations, when you compare confirmations uh, to finality, then what a lot of people don't understand is that a confirmation is subjective. It's not like there is a period of time, like this point in time that after you wait exactly this amount of time, then you go from insecure to secure. Mm. What goes on in reality is that the longer you wait, the more secure your transaction gets. And now the question is, how long do you have to wait? Um, and the thing is that if I pay you $100 million and a 51% attack cost $90 million an hour, then you would have to wait more than an hour. There is no way around this in any change, right? So the kind of security we are talking about now is security against 49% attacks, against uh, reverted, reverted attacks. <coughs> and now, say, Let's say that um, we are on Bitcoin right now, and I paid you a small amount of like $15, right? Um, and then I tried to mine a block in which I didn't pay you these $15. And so I only have 30% of the network. I still have some chance to win, right? Yeah. And it's a non-negligible chance. If you wait for six blocks, then this chance chance decreases uh, exponentially. Sure. So when you talk about 49% attacks, then um, then what matters is not the amount of time that you're waiting, but the amount of blocks that are above your block that give give confirmation to the version where I paid you. Right. So this is where the first uh, finality comes from, from the observation that even though a a 51% attack, the the security against it is is measured in cost of attack times the length of time. 49% attack, the feasibility of a 49% attack is measured in how many blocks were created. So having a very high BPS uh, with a very rapidly converging ordering means that uh, the probability of a 49% attack to succeed on Casper versus Bitcoin is the same for 10 blocks. So you'd have to wait 10 blocks either here or there to be secure against this attack. Mm. So this is how you get the first finality.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, because you're getting through 50 blocks, or 100 blocks by the time Bitcoin gets
1: through. I'm saying that a 49% attacker Mm. would have to be tremendously lucky to produce 10 blocks before the honest network produces 10 blocks. And the, how lucky they have to be is the same regardless of the block production rate.
0: Right. Got it. OK. Very interesting. That That's actually really helpful. So um, in terms of that number, that's basically a function of the, the BPS then. Mm-hmm. Makes sense,
1: and not 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 quite. It's a function of that when we count confirmation, we just we don't count blocks, right? We count okay. blocks above the block mm. um, containing a transaction. Parallel blocks do not uh, contribute, Got so it. it's it's a bit subtler than uh, than uh, BBS, but it converges there quickly. Gotcha. Okay. Um,
0: okay. So. We've hit a lot already. Uh, There's one thing that uh, has come up a couple of times on Twitter, and this was actually kind of how I got introduced to Caspa and and started reading up on on your work. Uh, And that's the idea of smart contracts on on Caspa. Um, (laughs) It's been a a little bit of drama from uh, from my community uh, coming in and saying, you know, having smart contracts on a DAG is Either possible, not a good idea, or however individuals have decided to phrase that. Um, but you have plans to implement smart contracts. So before we get into like how you plan to do that, um, let me just ask: like, why? I mean, obviously that's like it's a useful thing for sure. But when you look at the um, the vision of being digital silver and tradable. Um, smart contracts aren't necessarily part of that vision so i guess in terms of uh why even bother going this route what's the what's the motivation there
1: Uh, okay so digital silver is uh, a narrative i all wholeheartedly believe in Mm -hmm. but i still think that casper can be more i think that the casper network is this very powerful l1 could be infrastructure for a lot of things outside um, a digital payment. Now, I should uh, stress uh, very, very strongly that um, being uh, a means of payment is like the, the highest goal here. So any solution we will use for smart contracts will not be at the expense of the ability to, to do rapid transactions so we we consider the, the the payment layer like the grade a citizens and anything above it couldn't compromise the the usefulness for um just for rapid transactions sure. that being said this is really um, a tremendously powerful network and its power could be used for many other applications and we do want to see this happening uh, we want to see dexes. We want to see um, stable coins. We want to see. Um, ESCO. We want to see all sorts of uh, of applications that people are interested in. We want people to use the chain for whatever they want. We want to give them this ability. Um gotcha. So this is my my answer to why. Uh, essentially, because people want it and because we can. <laughs>
0: okay, cool. That's a good answer. Um, so then basically everything we've been talking about with uh, confirmation and the ability to have all of these uh, uh you know the ability to move fast with a dag and have parallel blocks really at least traditionally with dags only works because you have a very limited set of things that you can do on the dag where smart contracts open it up to have pretty much any code that anybody wants to run so do you i i'm curious are there any approaches that you would use to actually run smart contracts directly on caspa or are you looking at like l2 solutions as the kind of the main approach
1: yeah okay first of all i want to be very clear about this yeah gold gives you a rapid ordering this rapid ordering very fast very quickly determines how the blocks are ordered and who precedents who and regardless of the data on the blocks, whether it's uh, transactional data or code for smart contracts or whatever, um, this this thing that this uh, uh, idea that I get here thrown around a lot that um, because we're a DAG, then smart contracts would somehow harm the convergence. It doesn't work this way the the consensus layer doesn't care what kind of data is in the blocks it produces an ordering then you use this ordering so you would process uh, smart contracts essentially the same way that you would if it was just a chain originally. There isn't like an essential difference here. So people are saying that I could do this and I can do that and it would cause the the conflicts not to resolve and it would um, harm like the uh, liveness and the confirmation or whatever and all of this is wrong. It just doesn't make sense. And that being said, there are other reasons not um, not to do native smart contracts. Um, but before that, I, I want to turn the table on you. Like you're asking me, you're talking about native smart contracts, naive, native um, computational capabilities that are all done and verified all chain on chain. And I want to ask you, why? Why <laughs> would you want that? Why is this the holy grail? And why is this what people are considering like the best thing ever? Sure. Um, uh, it was a rhetorical question, yeah, obviously. <laughs> my personal belief is that it's a bad idea i mean i am not saying it's a difficulty i'm saying it's a bad idea and there are so many so many um, evidence for that and well the the core reason for that is that it just makes validating the chain so much more computationally uh, exacting now there is one thing you need to understand about uh, caspa is That we get to choose the bps Mm. and that's that's a very very unique property in all other protocols or most other protocols um, the bps like the block delay is determined by the protocol if you make it too short then the protocol would not be secure now you can go around this by making a lot of parallel stuff like sharding but when i'm talking about like one cohesive state that's uh, the truth. The truth of it. And now I see a lot of people trying to spin it into an advantage, which is uh, one habit of of uh, of crypto space and I guess technology in general, which I very very dislike. So they're, they're like saying, yeah, because uh, because our shards have, uh, are so small in throughput, we can run like on extra light hardware. That's like uh, you know I appreciate the lemons from lemonade approach, but essentially what they're saying is we can't scale. So at least at least because our throughputs are low, we can run on cheap hardware. But we also want to run on cheap hardware because we want making a node, uh, running a node also be accessible. So we are in this unique point where we get to choose what hardware would be required to run a Casper node Mm. and then scale ourselves towards this uh, hardware goal. Um, Because what does scale um, when we increase the throughput? is the uh, hardware requirements. Now, I must say that um, implementing GhostDog efficiently is very hard. Like Under the hood, we have had to solve a few open problems just to do that efficiently. And a lot of people told us um, that one problem is that you can't implement it efficiently. It's not efficient. And uh, if you go and try to do it naively and just implement it in the uh, obvious ways, then it is highly inefficient. We managed to make it efficient enough that you can run a node supporting 10 BPS, assuming 10 second uh, latency, so you get like this wide graph, so like a width of like uh, more than 100 blocks, with full transaction load, on like a, like the hardware requirement, and it's not tight. It's just the hardware we ran it on and said that it so that it works. It's like you know a home PC. Um, you need an SSD drive, 16 gigs of uh, of RAM, and um, what's there? Ah, and like a eight-core CPU. Mm. That's like completely reasonable. I've seen 800-dollar boxes online that can do that. Mm. Okay, so I'm talking about. 10 blocks per second, like uh, transaction rates of, uh, we've tested it with, uh, I think, uh, 8,000 uh, TPS, completely smoothly running on an uh, $800 nodes, fully verifying everything. We don't want to deviate from that. And sure. when you make smart contracts more and more and more exacting and uh, requiring more computation, you increase the hardware requirements. So it would mean either that we'd running a node would be much harder or and um, we'd have to decrease the bps back or somehow limit the smart contact throughput or stuff like that sure um, and what do we gain in return what is the benefit what makes on chain like evm or like uh, um, arbitrarily complex um, on chain uh, behavior that much valuable that it was this compromise and I'll just answer it. Nothing. The only reason people go after it is because it's cool. But essentially, um, okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit. When you have low block rates, Mm -hmm. then it makes sense uh, in some way, because if you take things off chain and only settle on chain or sequence on chain, then... You would uh, find yourself um, having to wait a lot of blocks for sequential behavior, etc., and doing stuff on chain does make it uh, faster. Gotcha. Um, but the thing is, because we have this insane um, block rate, we can adopt uh, can adopt off chain solutions like uh, Arbitrum and settle them and sequence them on chain, and still be much faster than uh, than other networks because even if we settle once every uh, 100 blocks it means that you wait 10 seconds for settlement and uh, compare it to chains with 30 second block time you would wait 30 seconds at the minimum so essentially it you pay a lot of cost and all sorts of cost. It's harder to develop. And what may, when it's harder to develop, it's harder to develop a profit. It's harder to debug. It's harder to maintain. It would have more bugs. It would have more attacks on it. And the only thing you gain by it is essentially nothing. And um, so this is why I don't like this approach at all. Uh, I get uh, I get that uh, people who do go this path uh, has done a terrific job in convincing uh, convincing the community that this is like the only way to go. And um, I think we are about to break this uh, this uh, entire narrative of on-chain complexity. And another thing is that you see, like just uh, a few days ago, um, a friend of mine, a, a very talented uh, guy called uh, Aviv and um, is uh, a PhD student uh, under the advisory of Aviv Zohar, the co-author of Ghost, and um, they came up with a whole bunch of attacks on Ethereum smart contracts um, that are very, very cheap. Um, and the crux of all the attacks is that you could have transactions which seem to be very expensive um, and they are invalid. So they wouldn't be included. You wouldn't pay the money and they, you wouldn't it, they wouldn't really be expensive because they wouldn't be included. But it takes a lot of computational power to realize that they are invalid. So this architecture is, it just demonstrated, this art- architecture has, has all of these problems. Now, if you don't do any of this, if your network only has like UTXO model with some benefits, I, I do think we can go beyond the UTXO model, but I just think that all of the functionalities we want to add Of functionalities that um, that have a constant uh, complexity. You see like, okay, you have some functions which are not pay this to that or validate this signature. You have some other stuff like lock this money, release money, only pay the money if this condition is met, all sorts of stuff. But all of them, you see the line in the code, you already know how much it's gonna cost to validate it. You don't run into GAS issues at all, which is another thing which is a huge problem. So um, I'm all for this kind of approach that you you keep these functionalities on-chain simple. And if you want arbitrarily complex functionalities, do it off-chain and settle on-chain. And since the chain is extremely fast, you would still gain very, very fast settlement. And, you, and once things are settled, you have the security of the L1, right? Yeah. The, only, the only region of time when you aren't sure that this will be included in the settlement as as long as the settlement hasn't happened yet. So you could still do it like every... I guess that everyone who is running an off-chain for any reason would decide how long they want to pay. Like, if it's like a DEX, they would settle every, I don't know, three to five seconds. And if it's just like an online game or something where things are more less, they will settle once a minute and they get this choice. Mm -hmm. Um, But the point is that it makes as powerful design with as desired properties, um, but much simpler to maintain and to make secure and much harder to attack. So yeah. this this is why I like this approach better. That being said, I don't think it's impossible to do um, smart contracts on Caspa. I just don't think that you could have the majority of the um, block space dedicated to it. If, if you sure. say like I don't know once in every 40 blocks is a smart contract block and the other blocks are transactional blocks, then uh, you can do all sorts of stuffs without uh, and still not slow down the the hardware as much. But sure. I, I don't see why. I, I genuinely don't think it has like uh, any tangible um, tangible. Uh, Advantages. I just think it's just uh, the way people got used to think about smart contracts, and uh, and like we've changed the way people think about how launch model. Now we came up with this fair launch. There were fair launch uh, projects before, but uh, I think the way we did it kind of inspired a lot of other projects that came after us to to follow this. And we did this rapid emission, and we have. Combined with ASIC friendliness, and I see, I, I expect other projects to follow that. I think we can also change the the way people think about how smart contracts should be implemented, and whether having a complicated functionality on chain is even a good idea at all. Which I think it isn't.
0: Gotcha. Well, Shai, this has been an excellent deep dive. Uh, you know as deep as we can get in a little over an hour but mm-hmm. um I, I think that caspa has a, a lot to offer and I'm, I'm excited to see where things go from here um but for today let's go ahead and wrap it up here and then if anybody has questions they can reach out to you on twitter um, i'll put links to to your twitter to uh, the caspa accounts twitter uh Caspa website and then that video that we mentioned halfway through there
1: um
0: yeah. Anything else you'd like to add before we sign off here?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm just, uh, I want to say this thing that I, it's important for me to say it in every interview that, <laughs> you know, we have cool tech and we have uh, great uh, researchers and uh, great developers. Um, but uh, the engine that really uh, makes this uh, coin keep going and keep growing and which motivates us to work uh, is the community. Mm. And I I just, I love the Casper community. It's an amazing community. It's a warm community. And I think uh, the people within this community, they really, a lot of them, even if they don't uh, fully understand it because they they came from other walks of life, they they appreciate the tech, they they admire the work. And I I think this is really a consequence um, of the decisions we made at the start and to be a community coin and to have a healthy spread of coin which is enabled um this kind of a uh, um, passionate and organically growing community that has allowed us to to reach uh, where we are and we just broke like top 80 I think in coin market in uh, in CoinGecko okay. um without being listing listed to the major exchanges um, we without paying for promotion, without advertisement, everything on based on volunteers and contributors and word of mouth. Um uh, I didn't even get to how we leverage the community to also decentralize the knowledge and decentralize the development. And really, we want to be decentralized in every aspect. We don't want to have a single point of failure in anything and developers come from within the community and grow so much that they are able to contribute to the beating heart, to the consensus code itself. And this wouldn't be possible if we weren't able to, to garner this amazing community, which now grows itself. And I just I just want to say how thankful and empowered I am by by all these things that's happening, because I never expected it. I, I'm not a crypto bro. I was not a part of the crypto world. Um, before I I was uh, keeping an eye on it as an academic. I read papers, uh, I know news things that are happening, but I was never part of this social cryptosphere and I was kind of hurled into it. And um, I think thanks to this amazing community, it's been a very uh, pleasant at most time experience and, and empowering experience and I believe all of the other major contributors feel as well. And we, I think we just want to, to stress again how thankful we are for, for getting this, um, such a warm um, entry into this uh, the world of actual crypto projects that actually exist. It's awesome.
0: Well, thank you, Shy. Uh Really thank appreciate you too. coming on Thanks today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, everybody, that's all the time we have. Hope you join me next week for the CoinPress podcast. Bye for now.